Lord, we want to pray uh, for this new season of teaching. And we ask you, Lord, as we seek a toolkit of faith into 2022, you'd give us new confidence and understanding of what we believe. And may it all be the truth. In Jesus' name. Amen. We are reading from Romans chapter 2, just the first four verses. It's called God's Righteous Judgment. You therefore have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else. For at whatever point you judge the other, you are condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere man, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think that you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, tolerance and patience, not uh, realizing that God's kindness leads you towards repentance? Well, it's quite a challenging verse uh, to start the year, or a few verses to start the year. But really, Paul here is in, encountering a church which has got quite judgmental. Uh, it's a slightly ironic because you know, things in Rome weren't exactly sweet. The Christians weren't kind of all up there like they were maybe more in, the, in Galatia. They weren't kind of really on the ball and they weren't firing on all cylinders faith-wise. There's lots of struggles in Rome. And yet there was a lot of kind of um, observing of one another and qualifying who was in and who, who was out who was good and who was who was bad and, and Paul here is saying look you know this is ridiculous because you're you're judging others at the same time you're doing exactly the same things that the, that they're doing that you're judging them against and you're un, you're misunderstanding the nature of God's judgment which is truth and what he's effectively saying is that, is look look at the standard stop comparing yourself with others who are also struggling and start looking to God and the nature of truth and goodness because they are the only benchmarks for you to measure yourself against. Now, that might sound like a sort of tangential entry today, but, but in this season through Faith Basics in Romans, what we want to do is set out the, the real basic understanding of the Christian faith and why it's so essential, really why it's so unique, especially in a very pluralistic worldview where kind of everything is relative and we're all kind of judging one another on the basis of, you know, do you think they've got that bit right? Mm, not sure. I quite like that bit. I'm going to take that from them and I'm going to add it onto this bit from over there and then this bit from this person and then I've got something that I think is better for me. And we will all find ourselves saying things like, oh, yeah, well, whatever you believe, you know, that's good for you. But, but is it good? We find ourselves accommodating that idea of saying, oh, yeah, well, that's really good that you've got conviction. Is it great that you've got conviction if you're actually convicted about something that's not true? I, I found myself challenged by, you know, conversations, as many of you will have had, around COVID. I don't want to start a kind of debate in the room, but it's quite difficult when you're talking to someone who's, you know, very vehemently anti-vaccine especially someone who comes from a whole family of doctors. Do you say, oh, good for you, uh, or do you say, oh, my goodness, this is probably not good for you, and it's probably not good for anyone else around you either? You know, um, and then you find yourself in these really awkward situations of saying, well, does it matter that you hold your belief with conviction? Is that important? Or does it matter that your belief is wrong or right? Isn't that more important? And I think we've got into a, a kind of a social muddle by feeling that truth has become self-orientated rather than God-orientated. Your truth is effectively what's important, and God's truth is actually not that important because it's kind of awkward. Uh, and we don't like awkward, especially not here in England. We like everyone to be happy all of the time. We hate conflict, and we don't like to say that anyone is right and everyone else is wrong 
very much, apart from online, under pseudonyms. So, um, you know, this idea that there might be something that's absolutely good is kind of challenging. But, but, but unless we understand the absolute goodness of God, we will never really understand the essential work of Jesus on the cross. You see, you know, if actually there is no good, if goodness is just a relative concept to your perspective, then actually there's also no sin and therefore there's no need for rescue because ultimately your sin could be someone else's angelic behavior or someone else's angelic behavior could be your sin. And therefore, what is sin and why do we need God? Ultimately, our moral discomfort just becomes a positional experience rather than something that's absolute. Um, I, brought, I always like to have an illustration, and I've been told not to just give illustrations in the morning. So I'm hearing you, whoever complained, I'm hearing you. Um, look, <laughs> that sounded really bitter, didn't it? No, no, no one really complained. So, so, so I've got some, I brought some water to show you tonight. Um, here is some water. It's all water. I got this out of the bog, and this is out of the bottle. Um, who wants to try this one? No one. There's a bit of toilet paper in there still floating around. It's looking a bit green, a few floaters in there. It's looking pretty nasty. I'm not surprised that you don't want to try this one. It's also water. It's just not pure. You know, it's not all good. If I drank this, I would get sick. Now, if this is good water, and this is all good water, we are seriously lost. But that is the concept that we have in the world today, that if it's all opinion, then really we can't say that it's either good or bad. It's just all opinion. But intrinsically, we know that actually there's a difference between opinion and truth. If this is all water, but this is bad water, and this is good, pure water, then there is a distinctive and physical difference between the two. And I want us to qualify the idea today, recognizing that the goodness of God is foundational to our understanding of faith. Sometimes it can be really hard to really explain the nature of goodness. If you think about it, how would you explain goodness to an alien? Oh, hello, Mr. Alien. Oh, you want to know what goodness is? That's convenient for my sermon. Well, kind of... Um, people doing the right thing. What's right? Ah, oh, challenging. Um, being nice. No, no. Uh, I don't. That's really hard. How do I actually qualify what good is? Well, maybe it's easier to qualify what good is by qualifying what good isn't. And, and, and I, I was at the Arsenal yesterday. Don't start booing straight away. Um, I was at Arsenal yesterday and I was watching them play Man City. I was thinking, one of the first things about good is that, is that goodness is not short-lived. Um, there was actually an ironic banner that popped up in the first half that said, goodness lasts forever. And I was thinking, yeah, that's true. And then we got to the second half and the banner sort of disappeared. If you don't watch the football, we were 1-0 up and then suddenly we were 2-1 down and we lost a man for kicking the grass in a strange way to interrupt the penalty spot. Anyway, <laughs> that was the worst way to go off in the world. Anyway, there we, we digress. But, but one of the ways in which go good is not good is if good is short-lived. I mean, look at my Christmas tree. Like a couple of months ago, this was a thing of object beauty. This morning, we, we got the kids to partially 
undecorated. That's why it's only decorated up to about five foot. Um, you know, it, it looks terrible. It was good for a season, but that's all it was good for. But the nature of real goodness is that real goodness lasts. And how many really good things do last? We talk about, oh, we were friends for a season. Or, oh, this was a great situation for a season. I enjoyed this job for a season. Or this situation was good for a season. But the nature of goodness is not that it's just good for a season. It's that it's good yesterday, today, and forever. In Psalm 51, it says, the goodness of God endures continually. Think about anything in your life that might be continually good. There are very few things that we can say are continually and always good, but God in his very nature is always good. And I want to kind of allow that, if you like, to be the underpinning narrative of your understanding of goodness. It's, it's continuity. It's, it's consistency that sets it apart because that kind of goodness is so distinct, it's almost impossible to see a parallel like it in the world around us. What is always good? The second thing about goodness is that God's goodness isn't partially good. So the first thing is that God's goodness is continual. The second thing is that God's goodness isn't partially good. Uh, there's so many things in life that are kind of a mixed bag. Like, I really love this job, but I just, just this bit I don't like. Or, I, I love my, this new car. It's, it's amazing, but the kind of cruise control is a bit weird. Uh, or whatever it is. You know, I, I love this new house or this new flat. It's great, but the neighbors, ah, it's yeah, difficult. They keep me up at night. You know, most of the good things in our lives are, are good, but then they're partially good. It, it's a bit like my dirty water. It's, there's definitely good water in there, but it's just partially good. Like, you wouldn't want to drink it. It, it needs to be cleaned up. It's, it's not all good. And the nature of God is that God is all good. Like, he's completely good. There's not a bit of God that is not good. And what's really challenging for all of us here is that when, our, when the circumstances of our lives are pressing or challenging or difficult or disappointing, it's very quick to kind of begin to say, well, you know, is God all good? Isn't he a bit angry? Aren't I getting punished for something here? You know, what about the God of the Old Testament, you know, and all the sort of angry bits of the Bible? Like, is he really good? He doesn't look very good by 21st century standards to me. You know, we begin to, if you like, recalibrate the nature of the goodness of God according to, again, our opinion, our view. But we're just like those early characters in Romans who are busy kind of saying, oh, well, I think this about God. Oh, no, I think that about God. Well, I have that bit about God, but not that bit. The Bible says that God is absolutely good. There's not an element, there's not an aspect of God that is not good. Interestingly, in development of the word good, which is unsurprisingly similar to the word God, the ancient uh, Germanic word for good was God. There was no separation from it. So if you said, oh, that's a really God plow you've got there, you'd go, oh, yes, thank you. I like your God donkey. Uh, because God and good were the same thing, because God is the benchmark of goodness. There was no distinction. The way we qualify something as being good is how closely it resembles God. God is the source of all goodness. So God is eternally good, 
And God is not partially good, he's completely good. In Isaiah 6.3 it says, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. When I think about the goodness of God, I just want to encourage you to see a little flavor, if you like, a little imitation of God's goodness in the world around you. When you see goodness, partial goodness, what you're seeing is an echo of the nature of God himself. It's not you're seeing all of God, it's just you're seeing a little taste of God's goodness. And someone said to me, oh, you know, if, if the world, you know, was, was, was really good and created by God, then everything would be perfect. And, you know, clearly God isn't around because if that was the case, then it wouldn't be like this. I was thinking, though, if God wasn't around, it would be a lot worse than this. Like what you see, the goodness you see is a little reflection, this little echo of the character, the nature of God manifest in the world around. Every day, it's boring for some, but interesting for me, I take a little photograph of the River Thames on my way home from church, on my way to church, and, uh, you know, it's my gratitude journal every day, and I'm amazed, my wife's also amazed, how do you get these shots of the river? I'm sure I'm passing the same river that you are. Where do you, where do you get these pictures from? Where do you find them? She thinks I'm like scrolling the internet for beautiful pictures of the Thames and then photoshopping them into my Instagram account. But if you've got eyes to see the beauty, it's there. And if you've got eyes to see the goodness of God in creation, it's there for you to see. It's just not a complete manifestation of his goodness, but it is an echo of his goodness. If you've got eyes to see the goodness of God in your relationships, you'll see him there. You won't see all of him, but you'll see an echo of him. And when we begin to have eyes to perceive the goodness of God, we can begin to wonder at the true goodness of God, the greatness of God. So God isn't short-lived in his goodness. Uh, God is not partially good. And God is reflected in his goodness in the good things that we see and experience. But God is not good in comparison, like your favorite soft drink. You know, we have arguments about, you know, which one are we going to buy? And there's always one who wants Fanta, which I don't like. And there's always one who wants Sprite, which I don't like either. I like Diet Coke. And there's the other one who doesn't like Diet Coke but likes Coke Zero because that's different. Although I'm not quite sure how. Um, you know, some people feel like God is, is good. You know, God is good. He's like my top trumps God. This is the kind of Christian God that I've got in my mind. Uh, he's essentially different to the God that you've got in your mind, but I'm going to choose this one and you can have that one. So we have like a kind of mix and match idea of God. And, and, and I choose the God that I'm particularly partial to. But God isn't going to allow us that privilege because he isn't the creation of our imagination. He is pre-existent to our imagination. So God's saying this is who I am. I am is one of the ways in which he describes himself. I am. I'm qualified. If you look at all the soft drinks that my children want for their tea, I can just point out that there's one universal ingredient. It's called water. The one thing that's distinctive. The one thing that has no flavor. The one thing that actually is really resourcing. One thing that's also free from the tap, so let's just all have the God bit of these soft drinks. Now, the reality is that we, we want an idea of God that fits our agenda, but we don't always want the nature of the God that we have. But that doesn't mean that that God isn't good. 
You know, just because we don't get what we want doesn't mean that what we don't want isn't good. It's just that our tastes and preferences don't quite align with what's true and what's good. I took the children to uh, the Van Gogh Museum a couple of summer ago, summers ago now, and I'm, I was standing in front of the Vincent Van Gogh's um, sunflowers. And I've got to say, I was pretty emotional. I, I don't think I've ever seen it before. I've seen prints of it, and I thought that was pretty cool. But, but the, the actual thing was like iridescent, and it was sort of so 3D. I mean, he used a lot of paint for that painting, all those paintings, I think he did 15 of them. It's like standing off the page, and it's incredible. And I remember, I was sort of standing there, and I, I'm quite an emotional guy. I was like slightly welled up. And then and I'm like there, lost in wonder at this thing. And then I said, isn't it amazing to my daughter? I said, oh, I prefer the one with the seat, the chair, and the bed, and walked off. <laughs> I was like, oh. I'm like, all magic had gone, <laughs> you know, like, oh, there we go. Like, we were like, went around the corner to see the chair and the bed one. Um, it's not a preference, like a painting, to be observed, the goodness of God. Like, different things pique our interest. But God is not like a painting. It, it's not a preferential deal. It, it, it's not for us to decide whether God is good. It's for us to acknowledge that God is good. And from that point of acknowledgement, our lives begin to have meaning again. Jacques Derrida, who's a, a French philosopher, we've talked a bit about them in our last series, he, he, he developed what we call deconstructionalism, which is a, a methodology, if you like, a philosophy of understanding the world. And, and Derrida, he, he effectively had a, you know, an underpinning criticism of Plato, who, who argued in structural terms that, that the world was filled with opposites, good and bad, right and wrong. And Derrida said, no, no, that doesn't, that's not true. You know, you can interpret any meaning from anything and ultimately what's important is the way you experience something, the way you interpret it, not the meaning held within it. Whereas Plato, for all of his mistakes, ultimately believed that the world had meaning. And for us, understanding that meaning is understanding that there is goodness at the core of creation and that goodness is God himself. You can see in a world which has become increasingly addicted to this idea of deconstructionism that holding on to a definitive good is pretty hard. But without a definitive good, how are we going to orientate ourselves to God? Ultimately, we've lost our compass. We've lost our true north. We'll never find our way home. Like we have to come back at the basic center of Christianity to acknowledge the goodness of God if there's any hope for humanity. We have to come back and say, God is truth, God is good, and I'm going to orientate my life around him. Because only knowing goodness can I also know darkness and brokenness. There's nothing worse than a man who doesn't know that he's lost. I've been lost, practically lost in the past. Before sat-navs, I was lost quite a lot. Um, but, you know, you know it, being lost is, is a nightmare. But there's no worse nightmare than being lost and not knowing you're lost. Uh, in one of the first churches I was working at as a young curate, I took the senior clergy, who I was quite in awe of at the time, uh, on a, a church retreat. And, and it was at, at the Osthouses, which are in Hastings. And I had been used to going to this place called Ashburnham, which is in Sussex. And you probably know, <laughs> know where this story is going. And I remember them saying, oh, well, you're going to drive us, and we're gonna, you know, we need to have a meeting in the car. I remember thinking, oh, this is great. I'm like the holy chauffeur for all the spiritual dudes. You know, I'm taking them on this really important retreat. And they said, you do know where you're going, don't you? I said, oh, yeah, no, I've been there several times before. I spent two and a half hours driving them to Ashburnham. 
And I got about three miles away and I suddenly realized that, that, that I was horribly lost. And I, they weren't talking about Ashburnham, they were talking about something called the Oast Houses in Hastings. And I, I thought, I've got to be really careful not to drive by the door of the Ashburnham Retreat House because they'll know it. So I tried really hard to avoid it, but the Lord had other plans. And I somehow went past a massive sign that said Ashburnham Christian Retreat Center. And one of them in the back said, hold on a minute, you've taken us to Ashburnham. And we were a solid hour and three quarters away from the retreat center we were supposed to be in. There's nothing worse than a man who doesn't know that he's lost or knows that he's lost and won't acknowledge it. You know, if we cannot orientate ourselves to the goodness of God, then we're lost. But we can't acknowledge it. We have to make up a new kind of rhetoric. We have to sort of support or endorse our decisions on the basis of the fact that we are going to deconstruct the nature of God's goodness and find some other way. But there is no way of deconstructing the goodness of God. It just is. He is the I am. And that's why we've got to start with him in pole position for our life and year. God is also not created goodness. And this is also fundamental to this argument. You know, we can make great things. Um, Lou made a great cake this Christmas, which I really, really enjoyed. You know, it was, a fantastic, it was a thing of beauty, a thing to behold, also a thing to eat copious amounts of. I, I really enjoyed it. It was created goodness, but, but it wasn't the same as ontological goodness, the goodness that began everything. You know, it, it was made, but that's all it was. And, and, and making goodness is really another mirror of, a small mirror of the nature of God's goodness because God is creator. And so when we make something good, we're actually echoing the nature of God himself. But something that's made and good is not the same as something who's made and is good. And God created out of his goodness. The Genesis story is so fundamental. When God makes something, he doesn't need an audience, but he says, oh, no, it was good. And he says, yeah, I've made that. It was good. I've made that as well. That was good. And humans, they were very good. So he's made goodness, but he has not made goodness himself. He is pre-existent goodness. You know, and when we share faith together, when we worship the Lord together, we're not choosing to worship something that we've made. That's idolatry. That's what people were doing for millennia before Christ. They were busy making their Asherah poles and their Baal cults and going, hey, I've made this golden cow. It's really cool. It's really good. Come and worship it. And other people went, yeah, golden cow. That's great. I love that. Let's all worship that too. That must be really good. Well, yeah, it's kind of good. I mean, it's a good sculpture. It's made of gold. That's pretty great. But it's just made. And ultimate goodness is not made. Ultimate goodness is pre-existent. And, you know, we'll all have these discussions. Oh, you worship that. Oh, good for you. That's great. Oh, you worship that. Oh, fantastic. Oh, lovely for you. But not if it's made. Because it might be nice. But it's not the source of all goodness. It's not God. I want to kind of encourage you right back to the start of the story and say, actually, I need to orientate myself to the one who was not made, the pre-existent one, the one who hovered over the waters, the one who gave life to the world. I want to come back to know that. I want to come back to know him. I want to know pre-existent goodness. In James 1.17, it says, every good gift 
Every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. God is originally the source of all goodness. He's the originator. He's the power behind our creativity, but he isn't our creativity. He's not the work of our hands. And I think we need to be really careful in here in church that we don't think, you know, because we have a great worship leader and a lovely band and, you know, we get to create great stuff, that that's the thing that we're worshiping. What we're doing is we're using our creative gifts to remind ourselves of the original creator, the one who enabled us to create. A core part of our Christian theology is this idea of the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and it's out of their relationship that the world is created. There's an overspill of love. There's not a need for love. There's an overspill of love and creativity which gives birth to the world. You are creative because he is your creator, not because you're making something great other people can worship. You're just responding to the one who is the creator. Finally, and maybe most importantly, God's goodness is not something to just be observed. If you go back into our Romans passage, there's this argument about judgmentalism. Oh, you made that. That was good. Oh, yeah, no, don't like that bit. And then Paul says, very importantly in verse 4, or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, tolerance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness or goodness leads you towards repentance? God's goodness leads you towards repentance. So, Let's think about some of the things I've mentioned in my talk so far. Great water, oh, very nice, very important, lovely, great. You know, a great painting, lovely, fantastic to observe. A lovely cake, delicious to eat. A Christmas tree, fantastic to decorate with. You know, all good, all can be observed and enjoyed to a certain extent, but not benevolent. The water is not trying to save me. The painting is not going to save me. The tree is not trying to save me. The Christmas turkey is not doing anything to me. It's filling me up, but that's all it's doing. It's not doing anything to me. You see, goodness in our experience can be something that's inactive and observed, like it's a, it's a noun, it's a thing. It's just, it's good, I like it. I'm going to cast my judgment over it. It's good, wonderful, great. But the kind of goodness that we're talking about here is the kind of goodness that jumps out of heaven, runs to earth, is nailed to a cross, bleeds and dies for your sake, and then welcomes you home. That's a different sort of goodness. You see, the goodness of God is living and active. The goodness of God wants to get down out of heaven and do something because God will not let you float by. The sort of goodness we're talking about here is the sort of benevolence, the sort of self-sacrifice, the characteristic, the nature of God himself, that he wants to get busy doing something that's good. Because I get so tired by this idea of this kind of pastiche of God. I love it that we've got some great images of God here, but these are not things to be worshipped. They just reflect a little bit of the one that we do worship and should worship because he has come down for us. He's reaching out to us. You know, Christianity is not a little bit of a religion on a Sunday as part of a kind of generally balanced diet of life. I don't go to the gym and then go to church and go to the pool and go to school because they're all good things to do. I go to church because it's my lifeblood, because I know God is reaching down out of the heavens, wants to grab me by the scruff of the neck and bring me home because he loves me. That's goodness. Now, when we talk to friends at dinner parties or out in the park or at socials or in the pub about our faith, are we talking about a God who's sort of distant like a painting that's good to observe? Or are we actually talking about the nature of God himself whose character is ultimately good, who longs for us, who loves us, who's active for us? 
That's a whole different sort of goodness. Luke 19, 10 says, For the Son of Man came to seek and save that was lost. That was lost. You know, it says in Isaiah that there's no beauty to him, that, you know, you weren't like, oh my goodness, here's the most handsome man in the world, I just want to go and hang out with him. This was God's nature to come and seek and save that was, the, that was, was lost. That's such an active God. We're going to spend the next season in, in February's teaching series about the running father, which is, if you like, a kind of a great exploration of the nature of goodness running towards you. I think I told you before I did a great season in one of my previous churches after I read Tozer's Pursuit of God. Uh, it's a great book. But I got really wrapped up in this idea that you could like run after God. I was like, yeah, I'm going to run after God. Let's pursue God together. Get everyone in the church to read the book. Play the song by the pursuit so we could all like run after God together. And it was the most depressing season of teaching in my entire ministry. I spent a whole lot of time running after God. Like he was something I could like run after and catch hold of if I just tried hard enough. Like it took me about a month of like blood, sweat and tears, wondering why this whole thing wasn't working at all. For God to speak to me, literally said, Will, what on earth are you doing? I remember going, I, I, don't, I don't know, God. <laughs> he said, no, I don't either, because I'm the one who's running after you. You know, God is running after us. He's running after you tonight. If you came into this building tonight and you're that person who just feels lost in sin and shame and discord, I want to say that you're here because God's running after you. God is running after you. He says, Paul says, don't you see how wonderfully kind and tolerant and patient God is with you? Does this mean nothing to you? Can't you see that his kindness is intended to turn you from your sin? God's goodness is intended to turn you from your sin. Because you see, the beauty of comparison is not that we're comparing, you know, like for like. It's that we're comparing unlike for like. He's unlike us. We're bog water. But there's some image of him here, which can be restored. Not that we'll be poured out into him, but that he came and poured himself out as an offering in order that we might become this. We might be restored and cleansed and healed and renewed and made one with him again. And that's what we're going to be talking about next week, that we need a saviour. We need saving. But unless we've got a diagnostic of what goodness actually is, we'll never know that we need saving. He's here to save us. But we need to know that we need a saviour. And the best place that we can start today is with the goodness of our saviour, the goodness of God. Why don't we stand and pray? God, we want to stand before you tonight and say you are good. We, we maybe know a little bit more about what goodness actually means right now than we did before this service. We want to say we have a little taste, but we are still way off the mark. We are struggling to comprehend just how good you are. But we want to thank you for your goodness because your goodness shows us your intent to save us that your goodness is a kindness that turns us from our sin and helps us to acknowledge that there is a destination for us, the destination of heaven. And Father, we want to align ourselves with the true north tonight, that there is an absolute goodness in the universe, and that is who you are. But you're not just a benevolent goodness to watch from a distance. You're the goodness who came down out of heaven, was nailed to a cross for our sake, rose again, and calls us into relationship with you. 
We want to thank you for your goodness. And we want to pray right now that, that the knowledge of your goodness would recenter and reorientate our lives. Would you come, Holy Spirit, touch us and renew us in that goodness. Give us a fresh revelation of just how good you are and how much you love us. Amen.